It's now official. The U.S. Army National Guard soldiers have established themselves as the foremost snipers globally. In the 2023 International Sniper Competition, four sniper teams from the National Guard proved to be the strongest contenders, achieving top 10 positions. Notably, Team 7 secured the first place position. The International Sniper Competition centers on combat, evaluating teams' capacity to communicate effectively and make decisions while facing stress and exhaustion. The competition comprises various day and night challenges that test the physical and mental abilities of the participants. In this episode, we engage in a conversation with the victorious individual, Sergeant First Class Eric Vargas, Staff Sergeant Ben Cotton, and Staff Sergeant Alan Smith. We delve into their experiences in the competition and their roles as snipers while serving in the National Guard. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Raven Report podcast. I'm very excited to have uh, the winners of the International Sniper uh, Competition at the uh, newly named Fort Moore a couple weeks ago. So I'm just going to go around the horn to kind of introduce everybody. I'll just say hello. I have uh, Sergeant First Class Eric Vargas of the New Mexico National Guard. Thanks for being on today, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, super excited to be here. Yeah. All right. Then I have uh, Staff Sergeant Alan Smith of the Arkansas National Guard. How are you, man? I'm good, brother. Thank you for having us on. All right, yeah. And then finally, Staff Sergeant Ben Cotton, also of the Arkansas Guard up there at, at Tech. How are you? Good, man. How are you? All right. Yeah, so uh, I guess just uh, to kind of get us started, uh, Sergeant Burris, why don't you just kind of like outline what the International Sniper Competition is and, and uh, why it's important? So the International Sniper Competition is one massive competition that they put on, and I believe it started in 2001, and the goal was to create a massive training event where they put together all the best snipers from all the best units to include international teams to come down, compete against each other, uh, trade, you know, tactical procedures, you know, what they're using, kind of like intermix and in their, their operations. And at the end, you know, they just pick a winner and then and whatnot, everyone has a good time. Right. Uh, but in the end, it, it's, a, it's just one big training event. For, for all the top teams out there. Oh, okay. Well, how do they score something like that? I imagine there's probably like a, a marksmanship component that's pretty, you know, heavily. But I, from my understanding, there's a lot more to them than just simply shooting a target. Is that correct? Absolutely. So you have stalking, you have target detection, you have range estimation, you have um, land navigation. Mostly, usually they just do it at night because that's the most difficult part. Uh, sometimes they'll run into the day. So not only are you tested on marksmanship tasks, you're tested on field craft ability and operations and stuff like that. And it kind of encompasses the entire sniper job. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, I have a thousand questions about all that, but I, I don't want to like kind of admit, kind of like over or glance over the, the fact that you guys are from three different guard states. Um, how, did y'all, how did y'all get together? How did y'all meet and form a team? Uh, we, uh, we're, uh, what's called the all guard team. So, uh, we all have, uh, been competing, um, in our own respective States, uh, 
apart from each other for several years. And the, uh, the National Guard puts together a, uh, a conglomerate roster of some of their higher performing teams. Uh, so um, that's where we all kind of got together. We're all on the All Guard team together. And uh, to get to the International Sniper Competition, uh, there's a, a feeder event called the Winston P. Wilson uh, Sniper Competition that is basically the Guard's version of ISC. And they take the, the top teams there and then uh, they get to move on to the ISC. Well, uh, Eric Vargas, uh, he was on the, he would have represented the All Guard team going into the Winston P. Wilson and he earned a slot to the ISC and he filled out his roster uh, with the, basically the only other two guys on the team, which were me and Smith. So that's kind of how we all got together on this one. We used to actually compete as rivals for the most part for several years. <laughs> all right. But, <laughs> it was definitely weird being on a team with those two after being rivals with each other for several years. <laughs> so y'all knew each other uh, decently well before y'all actually were on the same team together. Pretty well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine we were, we're rivals, but we were friendly too. So I mean, right. it, co yeah. competition's <laughs> not. It's not like a. It's not a, a like an adverse uh, type of environment. Everyone tries to learn and get along the best we can. So right. Yeah, I imagine it's a uh, you kind of learn a lot uh, by competing with it with the other person. So that way, whenever you're actually on a team, it probably actually made y'all a, a lot more effective. And but y'all won it, so that, that had to be there has to be a, at least a, some element of truth to that. Okay, so y'all form a team. Like, what's the preparation for uh, for the international sniper competition look like? Uh, so, so we oh, go ahead. No, uh, so the uh, there's a lot of preparation that we all do on our own. Um, since we're National Guard, uh, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of training on our off time, um, which you know we get more of being in the National Guard. Uh, we have to, but we have to schedule that off time between our civilian careers and our uh, whatever we do in the National Guard. Uh, and then we get brought in uh, to the Warrior Training Center for several weeks before the competition to uh, to kind of basically tune up. And since we're all from different areas, uh, begin working together as a team. Uh, you know, so we kind of focus on physical fitness, team dynamics, and the marksmanship part should already be there. So uh, that's right. kind of what the train up was like. Uh, I'm sure Eric and Alan can go into further detail with it, but. Yeah, right. so this year they they, they kind of it was interesting because they kind of did a, a double selection type thing. So they took the teams from WPW, and then before the actual international sniper comp, they had another selection of those teams that were selected. And then that one day, I think you know it was only two guys, and Ben was my partner for that. And what did we do? We did like about twenty-two miles worth of. Uh, movement activities you know land night land navigation and target detection and uh, we did a, a stalk and of those teams the top three were, were picked and then we got to add our third which was alan and then alan just alan ben and us or sorry alan ben and me we all just pretty much worked on communication and teamwork because like Ben said, the marksmanship should already be there. We shouldn't be starting from the ground up on how to hit a target at 1500 meters. You know, now it's all about how do we communicate? How do we correct shots being put out? Cause my lingo might be different than their lingo. And that's something we need to hammer out before the actual competition starts. So we're not wasting time on the clock. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess describe for me like what, 
um, you, you say target detection, and all, the vast majority of our listeners are not snipers. Our sniper protection is really, really small. So, like, uh, what when you say you're having to do target detection, what does that look like? So, target detection is basically finding any sort of key indicator that there's either an enemy or some something that's not supposed to be there. One of the things we do for target detection is we we have about like a scenery, like say you're looking at wood line and we have these optics and someone or the instructor will go out there and hide different types of military items within that scenery. So they might put a fragmentation grenade on top of a stump that, you know, kind of blends in with everything. And you need to see if you can find that item. And this is not just one item. Usually it's about 10 items. You know, they might have a charging handle from an AR hidden within uh, a bush or something like that and you got to be able to pick that out and these items are usually small and they're probably at a distance anywhere from 50 to 100 meters and it, it can be pretty difficult to find yeah it sounds yeah, it's not a it's not a like a like a practical like you wouldn't ever in the real world be looking for a charging handle in a bush but what it does is it's a game that we play to kind of train our eyes to find uh, anomalies and differences and patterns that you might see in a terrain that you would be observing. So it's just a game, but it's a very, it's got a game with a lot of, uh, a lot of good actual uh, skill set that you can apply into your real job. Kind of a small small mindset that if you can find a, a charging handle, then you should be able to find a person. Correct. You know, you know you especially can... a person with camouflage on, you know, it's like, hey, that that pattern doesn't really mix in with, with the lines of that bush. And then as you burn a little deeper, you're like, yeah, that's that's a uniform. That's a person. Right. Yeah. So um, so it's basically kind of like a, we have a lot of Western hunters. Like they're just, you're you're basically glassing like, uh, you know, and becoming like a super, uh, super glasser. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, so uh, uh, what about stalking? Tell me about that. Oh, man. Oh. This year, uh, this year's stalk was kind of a, it was, it was definitely a hurt feelings parade. <laughs> yeah. Was, there, was a, there was a lot of upset people walking back to the ORP, including ourselves. Why was it so hard? Well, this year they, uh, they decided, typically a stalk is, I know where my target is. I'm trying to advance line of sight from my target to my position, and I'm trying to stay covered and concealed uh, so he can't see me from where he is. But this year, they focused on uh, near-peer threat, so they used thermal and and UAVs. Uh, And when I say UAVs, I mean like quadcopters that can go and fly below the canopy of the trees and 360 the whole position. So you basically, instead of being able to camouflage yourself uh you know the area in between point a and point b which is yourself now you have to stay hidden completely around you uh and it was extremely difficult yeah i I would imagine so so uh our brigade actually got tasked with uh putting together a um like a lpd on the the ukraine flight and obviously uas has a a major you know factor in that so i can see why they would want to to have that in there so what did you learn like how do you how do you uh slip through some woods without actually being uh you know caught by a quadcopter because i imagine that'd be pretty difficult you don't you don't (laughs) (laughs) it was extremely difficult i I think the the quadcopter busted probably over half the teams out there i mean the thermals really didn't do much it was it was that drone 
Right. Yeah. Interesting. The, the thermals we know to defeat. I mean, vegetation has yeah. a thermal signature too. And if you veg if you veg up your ghillie suit, you're just going to look like the bushes for the most part. Uh, so it thermals pretty. We've been training on how to defeat thermals, but having a quadcopter that can literally hover ten feet above your head and you can't even hear it. That's that's a very difficult thing to uh, to try to to stop. So like especially what... when you're going on it. Go ahead. Well, just real quick, especially the area we were stalking in, it didn't really have that much vegetation to hide. Hmm. So it was extremely difficult for everybody. It wasn't much out there. Right. Okay. They so had just like... done a controlled burn on the site about a, a few weeks prior. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure was probably by design. It was pretty barren. Yeah. Uh, so, honestly, from what the instructor said, it wasn't by design. They, they, uh, the people didn't know that they were going to be having a, a stocking event there in a couple of weeks, and they burnt it, and then they kind of threw the instructors for a loop. But they already had it laid on, and it's like, all right, well, we're, let's try it. <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, the real world's chaotic like that, so like, it's, there is yep. an element of realism to it. Yep. Yep. The realistic answer to that was like, I'm not going out on the stock. <laughs> I'm the subject matter expert was, to my to my scope, and I'm yeah, not doing this. That's a suicide <laughs> mission for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so did anybody actually beat the quadcopter? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think about five teams out of 35 uh, was able to grade out. I might be wrong, but uh, the, the exact number, but about that percentage, yes. So what yeah, did they do differently? I have no they idea. I was avoided Oh, I, I was near them. I was hearing them talk. And what they did was they avoided where everybody else was pretty much. And they went to the extreme left limit or the extreme right limit for the most part. Because <laughs> that the helicopter was hovering around. They were busting out every, were busting everybody. And it was just one drone. So they just went all the way around and stayed super far from it while the, that drone was distracted on the rest of us. Right. Which, okay. which uh, you know, worked out for them. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's that's interesting. Just trying to be like, I guess the only way to really beat it is just try to be where it's not. Right. Right. But yeah. you tried. Uh, we there was several times that uh, we were, you know, working on a position and we would hear the drone kind of fly over, and then we would go run below low canopy, you know, some scrub trees that might have a, a canopy just ten feet off the ground, and uh, we would try to, you know, and it would pin us down for, you know, uh, fifteen minutes while it was trying to grab somebody else that was nearby us. Uh, but after a while, you know, you just get caught in the open with your pants down and there's nothing you can do about it. So, right. So this is kind of like a, like to kind of like frame the, the event. It's like a shotgun start. They put everybody online. They're like, okay, they'll go. And then like the whole time they're, they're picking teams off left and right. Yeah. So you start at a, an objective rally point. Uh, it's about, I don't know. I think this one was about a kilometer away from your uh, target site. It was a it was yeah. a 360 degree stalk. It was around a, a cactus, which is a like an urban mount site. And uh, you didn't know which building your target was going to be on. So basically, you had to cloverleaf recon the entire village uh, to find your target. So uh, it was it just made it, it it added a whole other element to it. So right, okay, well that makes sense. So. Um... How like so? Landa was obviously like a big portion uh, of it. He said, "Was this one like particularly difficult?" Mm, I mean, not for us. We we found a we found our way through the cactus pretty quickly. Okay, makes sense. Even on the even on the land nav lane, it was pretty you know cut and dry. You could you could terrain associate for the most part. 
Okay. But for the night yeah. vision land nav, like the, the night land nav that we did at the end of the comp. So oh yeah, the E and E. Yeah, that that was a little hard. There were some teams that got a little turned around lost. Yeah, was it so were there any parts of the competition where they, they injected um like modern threats, like more near peer type types of things aside from the from the drone? Uh they they launched the uh they launched the drone uh for the E and E event, the uh for the night land yeah. after the drone was so the uh the E and E oh. event um, you had yeah. uh basically you had to r remain undetected all the way to your egress point. And there were, uh, you know, vehicle patrols and roving patrols and then aerial uh, drones looking for you. But it was, uh, it was a little easier because you weren't so confined into one area like you were for the stock. You actually were, you, if, you, if you were pretty fast, you could stay on the move and kind of outrun those patrols. Right. So I yeah, thought you had a lot more freedom maneuver around there. Yeah. Right. So I guess like, like the, it seems like the the way to beat a drone is to uh, use the terrain to your advantage and speed, uh, and just try to stay away from it as best you possibly can. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, or find a way to shoot it out of the sky. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, then they, know, they, yeah, they know you're there. Then, blur, but yeah, then they know you're there. But how are they still got to find you? So it gives you enough time to still get away. Right. Right. Makes sense. So. Um, Putting together a, a team of, of people that, that have competed against each other, but now are competing with each other. What were some of the like kind of team dynamic challenges that you had to work through? Uh, um, I, I would say that honestly, we we were able to really tune up our 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 communication. Eric saw a lot of things because me and Ben typically shoot together all the time anyway. Um, and so, you know, when you shoot together and, and you don't have any, you know, you're not watching yourself for the most part, he's able to sit back and tell us like, Hey, you guys are talking too much. Hey, you guys are, you know, this, that, and it, honestly, he kind of built a stronger adversary for the future if we ever compete against him. Uh, but he was really helpful because he, he was a hundred percent right. There were a lot of times where. He, you know, he wasn't trying to be uh, hard on us or anything, but even even during the match, he'd be like, hey, shut up and give him a win call. Like, quit talking. You know? And he was 100 <laughs> percent right. Um, and so just different things with that. I, I felt like uh, no hard feelings on my part because I definitely needed it. Right. I imagine there's a cultural element to that because like, so y'all are both from uh, you know North Louisiana, South Arkansas kind of thing. And then uh Eric's coming from uh, the other side of the country. And like, I, I've, after having been in the army for about 18 years now, I've noticed that the guys in the South like chit chat or is, yeah, other people, maybe not so much. So. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> <I really don't. laughs> we've gotten, we've gotten much worse with the chit chat over the last couple of years. And Eric, you know, Eric understands me the last uh, few years, Alan and I've been working at the national guard schoolhouse. So it's like, we're less performers and more mentors now. So like we catch ourselves talking each other through corrections instead of just giving the corrections, which is extremely uh, counterproductive time efficiency wise. <laughs> and, uh, and I have definitely had to work on that um, it, when I'm in game mode, which I'm not in game mode uh, all that much anymore. Uh, kind of definitely shifted gears to training side. So. That's an interesting dynamic because, like you, uh, I mean, you develop training scars wherever you know, wherever you're, whatever you're doing, and then uh, I guess like, these competitions are a really good way to kind of identify those scars and then start to kind of work on them. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, and one of the things that Eric constantly pointed out to me was, uh, you know, as instructors, we have a, a bad habit of, well, I don't want to say a bad habit. We have a habit of wanting to help people. Um, and so even competitors, uh, you know, we were like, man, you're doing this. Why not try this? And Eric's like, hey, shut up. Like we <laughs> were competing against these guys. You know, but it's just, it's ingrained in our, in our DNA now to put that instructor hat on. And, and so it was a little difficult to take it off, um, you know, and I, I know that sounds bad, but there's some gameism to the, oh, without to, a doubt. to the competition. My after action review and how we do everything is completely public and I'm an open book to anybody, but he does have a point. If we've traveled all this way and done all this prep to, to prove our medal in this competition, and someone else showed up with less preparation, it's not up to me to fix them right then and there. Uh, it's, right. But I, I'm totally fine to do that at any other time. And we uh, we trained up with several other National Guard teams at Fort Benning for a couple of weeks before the comp. And we were, I thought, as helpful as we possibly could be to those guys because they were near us. And, okay. you know, it was just training. It was on the range. They didn't know how to do certain things that we did. We obviously would help them out, but. Right. Right. But in that's that environment, you're trying to beat them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the three days of the comp, it's like, all right, this is, this is us time. So. Yeah. That makes sense. But we, we still, we, uh, we still got a, you know, did what we could and we got on to for it. So <laughs> right. we got, we got a, we got a talking to. So yeah. Tell me about the, like the world of uh, sniper competitions. Cause I, I, up until probably about two years ago, didn't realize like I knew that I, I, because I was in the Arkansas Guard, I knew about the Wilson P. Wilson. Uh, they they would you know come and and grab us uh, out of uh, first battalion there and throw us you know on the range to go run and do things. Um, and I, I'd heard I remember watching a National Geographic documentary on the international sniper competition before I even joined the army, um, but I didn't realize that how many of them are, are actually out there and like there's like kind of this like wild subculture of all these uh, sniper competitions. So like. How does how do you get into something like that? And like when like what's the what's that environment look like? I think uh, I think it's an anomaly with the with the type of job. Uh, I don't want to speak too boldly, but at least in the jobs that I've had in the National Guard, you know, I was a mortarman first, then I was a JFO, uh, went to that school, and then you know, typical eleven Bravo, and then eventually went recon and went sniper. And out of every unit and every uh like sub job that i've been in no one had the passion to better their skills at, like snipers have every and it's pretty much like every unit i go to if you look at any infantry uh battalion and you go to their sniper section you're probably going to find a lot of really motivated guys to learn and the best place to supplement uh a hunger for training are these competitions because generally they're pretty fun they get to they get to run, they get to do cool stuff. They get to shoot their long guns at little tiny targets. They get to do all this stuff that they've been preparing to do that they might not normally get to do on a drill weekend or a training rotation or a range day with their unit. Uh, and these guys seek them out and it's, it's entertaining. It's just like anything else. Most of the, uh, the private competitions are in their entertainment business. They're trying to get guys to pay money to come out and shoot these competitions. And it, it gets really addicting really quick because of how fun they are. Right. And so the, the culture definitely takes off. Uh, I've seen, uh, 
you know, you've got the small arms competition like the regular Winston P. Wilson, but the sniper one is is uh, definitely its own thing. It's completely different. Right. And there's hundreds of these matches all over the country, and they happen, you know, there, there's a precision rifle match every weekend across the country uh, all year long. You just have to find them. And so, a lot of them do. Yeah, so, like, what is it about being a sniper that um... – that, that drives that that hunger for uh, for excellence for kind of like honing that craft uh, that the other MOSs just don't seem to foster for for whatever reason. I couldn't tell you. I just know that I'm in love with it, and I know Alan is, and I know Eric for sure is. So uh, I can't explain where that love comes from. Uh, it just I, I can't. Typically, when it comes to the military thing, you've got Alan uh, over there had was in Iraq in 2004 and look at him. He's a staff sergeant because he, he wanted to, he didn't want to leave the sniper career path. Uh, same thing. I've been in it since 2006, the same thing. I don't want to leave the sniper career path. So I'm just, I, I just stay with it as long as I possibly can. Cause I don't want to do anything else. Right. Uh, I'm sure yeah. Eric and Alan can add to that. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from, from, um, it's one of those where you can't fake the funk, you know what I mean? So like you, you can go through sniper school, you can get your tab and then you sit out for three years and you don't, you don't hone your craft and you take a buddy hunting and you get out there and you miss a deer at 150 yards because you didn't zero your rifle or whatever the case may be. It's one of those where it's easy to call yourself a sniper, but it's one of those things that you have to constantly practice um, and, and you have to, you know, find avenues of training that otherwise may not be available, you know, and so me and Ben and Eric too, you know, we all travel around, shoot different comps. Um, me and Ben just shot real world sniper match uh, a couple weekends ago and, and we're fortunate enough to win that, um, which by the way is is probably one of my favorite matches. Uh, I, I really shouldn't say that because I don't want a lot of people trying to crowd the the entry, but <laughs> But uh, Nick Gal does a phenomenal job of putting on a great match. Uh, but yeah, so it's just one of those where you, you're easily exposed if you do not train. You know, as a normal 11 Bravo, you're, you're assaulting through an objective, you're breaking contact, whatever the case may be. Those things are kind of, they become muscle memory. But when it comes to the sniper community, things are constantly developing. New new rounds are coming out, new scopes you know new uh, calibers different stuff like that and so you really have to stay on top of your game to be competitive um and so i think that's you know that's one of the main differences makes sense and now out, outside all the new stuff i mean it's it's a lot of perishable not only is the marksmanship perishable but how much trace have you read this month because that you know you have to it takes a lot while to you know train your eyeball to retrace and you have to stay up on it how much wind and mirage have you have you accurately assessed you know you have to cost you have you have to have that constant feedback to uh just to stay proficient really i mean and, and then everything else you know uh your your physical fitness too that's plays a, a really big part in it because most sniper matches you go to there will always be a physical element they're going to stress you out they're going to get your heart rate up and they're going to put you on the clock because steel targets don't shoot back at you so the only way to simulate that stress is to elevate your heart rate and then challenge your decision making under the clock that's the only real enemy you can fight you know stateside at a competition makes sense so what's that physical training look like because i mean like uh with 
there's there's just PT that, that's going to kind of give you like a general fitness, but then there's you know sniping. I would imagine has a kind of like a, a unique element to it because you're you're spending a lot of time going a long distance, uh, probably spending a lot of time on the ground. Like so, how do y'all actually pre- kind of prepare uh, for for something like this? Cardio, cardio, lots of cardio, <laughs> cardio. <laughs> move far, move fast, and uh, you don't need to to lift a helicopter. So you ain't got to worry about maxing out your bench press or anything like that. But you definitely got to be able to, you know, maintain your heart rate at a good level where you can still function and not just think about how much it's sucking. And you definitely got to be able to move with some weight on your back a long distance. So a lot so of running. We a did a lot. Of, like, a lot of running. Yeah, core, yeah, uh, we core exercises, hit workouts, cardio, you know. One thing we really found that helped us a lot was they they brought down the master fitness trainers, the instructors, and they kind of assessed our flexibility and our, our mobility. And uh, we found out they were terrible <laughs> at that. <laughs> so they gave us, uh, you know, several stretches and exercises we can do to kind of, you know, help some uh, mobility issues that we had. They showed us some recovery drills with uh you know the lacrosse ball and the, the and the foam roller that you know me ben and alan didn't really know too much about and it worked wonders it was awesome so you actually saw also, a pretty big uh, benefit oh, huge. oh yeah the uh being in your mid to late 30s and still doing this job is not uh it's not great if you don't know how to recover properly <laughs> because your body's not going to do it for you like it used to when you were 22 yeah. Right. I'm sure every older listener on here has known exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, no, I, I hear you, man. I'm 36. And I'm starting to have like weird uh, joint pains and stuff. I'm just like, where is this coming from? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so uh, yeah, having having a really good recovery plan and, and focused recovery is, is huge, too. So. Makes sense. Um, so, like, uh, when you're getting ready for, for a competition like this and you're thinking about the the physical component you're looking at a lot of like a lot of rucking a lot of uh mobility stretching that kind of thing and then uh distances are y'all like all marathon runners or or is that you know too far not at all, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I, I typically focus on uh on heavy lifting uh but i had recently come off of a knee surgery and i was still having a lot of issues uh, i couldn't do Stairmasters or run for a long time without a knee sleeve on, and so my my biggest deal with going in this comp is like, man, it my knee might might tear apart, you know, but I'm at least going to finish through it. And I just wore knee sleeves the whole time, and I mainly did a lot of you know walking, biking, stuff like that. Um, I could not, I couldn't run, and I was glad that Eric Eric kind of figured out too um, that running is actually more conducive for speeding up your ruck times you know getting out there and rucking is doing nothing but tearing your body down Um, and so we focus more on just on cardio mobility uh stuff like that and i kind of put the weights down for a little bit you know we might do it once every three days or whatever a a light routine but cardio as a sniper is essential but especially in these competitions because you're they're going to implement something to get your heart rate up and you're have to be in good enough shape to be able to calm yourself down for your squeeze. 
So we talked a lot about um, the competition, about mastering your craft, but what about somebody who uh, is just a, a regular run-of-the-mill 11 Bravo who thinks that they might want to become a sniper? What's that pathway uh, look like, and how do they get going? Go ahead, Eric. You can tell them how, he, how you guys selected snipers, and then uh, I'll bring up how Alan and I did it. All right. Uh, well, so I, I come from 3rd Ranger Battalion, and um, – Basically, it went off your performance. One year, you had to be ranger school, uh, pass ranger school, get your ranger tab, and that's just how regiment is. Once you get once you get that, everything, all the jobs can open up to you. You know, K9, snipers, uh, Rista, all this other stuff. And I always wanted to go the sniper route. So we deployed on my second deployment, and I performed exceptionally. And there's an opening for snipers. So I put my name in the hat and they're like, okay, you're going to go through the sniper selection. So basically all of us that want to be snipers, we did a PT test and we did a, a shoot in and then we did a 12 mile ruck. And if you're one of the top performing guys, you got selected. And part of that too was the shoot in, you know, you can't go in there and say we did a basic qual and you know, you had to get, you had to at least get experts. So 36 out of 40. And then from there, that was the minimum requirement. As long as you get that, then they'll look at your, your PT score and your ruck score. And then you got to the sniper section, which was kind of funny for me because the first thing I did was actually first down in Texas, and my and the instructor was Todd Hodnett, and he had a guest instructor that day, which was Brian Litz. And Todd Hodnett is basically the guy who created everything we know now in terms of, you know, figuring out wind and our formulas. And Brian Litz is, a, is literally a rocket scientist who knows how to figure out the BC, the basic ballistic coefficient of a round. So they're both up there giving us this class, and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I don't even know what twist rate was on a barrel. <laughs> and then Brian Litz gets up there, and he tells you the mathematical problem, how to find out your ballistic coefficient, and I don't know what is going on. <laughs> But so it was like our crash course, and then they sent us to sniper school. Yeah. All right. So, so not being a kick-ass ranger, uh, like just yes. traditional National Guard, uh, the uh, it's a it's it seems like it's much easier to be a sniper in the National Guard. Um, so we uh, we basically uh, so and this is for the National Guard listeners out there that are typical eleven Bravo. Uh, you're gonna get noticed if you're high performing 11 bravo uh especially if you have a pretty good sniper section like we always got blamed of snatching up all the good guys so uh my advice is if you want snipers to notice you uh care about your job care about your fitness and and basically be like the best e3 or specialist in your squad and uh and then there and then have your squad leader get all pissed off whenever we send you an invite to come to selection so then uh so then we hold, uh, we find all the guys we like when we ever have an opening and we have what we call an indoc, an indoctrination, which is just like a selection where we do something similar. Uh, in the past, we've done uh, a shoot in or they, they typically will involve a shoot in. Um, no, like a like an unknown distance ruck march with uh, with Ken's game, which is keeping memory system. So like we might hide. Uh, an RPG, like lay an RPG out on the ground of the road march or, you know, uh, uh, you know, like all these military items on the route. And then at the end, they have to memorize what was in there. Uh, we'll teach them. Uh, we teach them classes and see how well they retain it. So we can see like 
who is the most trainable out of those guys. Uh, obviously, uh, PT, things like that. Um, it's different depending on who's putting on the end dock, but those are typically the areas we focus on. And then after that, we might we might have five, six guys show up to the end dock and we can only pick one of them. So then once we then once we pick them, uh, it's up to us. We give them a, a date to sniper school, which usually takes about a year. And then we in the section train them uh, to increase their success at sniper school, because in the National Guard, you don't get a lot of tries at that school. You uh, you basically only get to go once. So we want you to pass first time go so we don't have to go through the process of, you know, putting you back in ATARs, waiting another year for a class date and things like that. So. Right. That makes sense. So it's it's, you know, about a about a one year, year and a half pipeline to get sniper qualified in the guard. Makes sense. If you're a good dude. What is uh so let's say oh, I guess let me acknowledge that what I hear you saying is that like you'd be a, a top performer, be on top of your PT, and then uh, eventually somebody's gonna you know notice that uh, that you're the type of person they want in the sniper section. And all you gotta do is just simply raise your hand and off you go. Um, and and then uh, so like what, let's say you do go to sniper school. What does that look like? How long is it? What's the details on that? So cyber school's uh, seven weeks. Uh, they're currently trying to cut it down. Um, but basically, like Ben said, once you get an ATAR slot, you show up, you still have a shoot in. So if you do get accepted to uh, if you have a class date, I would highly recommend focusing on your M4 marksmanship with iron sights uh, because you're going to do a shoot in day one. And we send people home all the time day one. Um, and then basically every every event you have, whether it be unknown distance, whether it be movers, chems, well, not really chems, but TD, uh, which is target detection, those things are all go-home events. So the schoolhouse, when I came through, it was a scoring-based system. So as long as you maintained a 70 throughout the whole course, you were good. Now things have shifted and every event is a go home event. So if you you can get all the way to the end and, and if you fail uh, that last event, you're going home, you know, so it kind of always keeps you on your toes. You're never just once you pass one thing, it's like, hey, pat myself on the back. But net tomorrow, you know, I've got movers. So now I've got to focus on that, um, which, you know, uh, things are always going to change. We basically follow whatever Benning sets forth. Um, which we have some input on that. But yeah, I would say if you're coming, uh, if you have a schoolhouse date, focus on your M4 uh, iron sights and, you know, grouping exercises and your fitness. The instructors will handle the rest, hopefully. Yeah, we got you on the rest of it. Don't worry about it. And y'all are both- going to pass that day zero stuff. Yeah. Y'all are both uh, instructors um, in Little Rock. Right? We are. Right. Yeah. Camp, uh, Camp Robinson. Yep. yep. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so I have a, a bunch of questions. So y'all have used a, a lot of uh, like terms and stuff that, that are I'm vaguely familiar with, but I think yeah. that a lot of people that probably myself included would uh, benefit from just kind of knowing. So um, I've been taking notes as you're going. Okay. All right. What's twist raid? Uh, Eric, you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's just the rifling in the actual barrel and different barrels have different uh, twist rate depending on caliber so like your m4 has a one in seven twist rate you know the um the the mark 22 mrad that we're using for 308 has a one in eight twist rate 
And that means um, it, 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 it has one full it, revolution per eight inches. Yeah, and that's what stabilizes the round ball in flight. So if you think about like throwing a football, right? You, if you throw it too hard, it's gonna it's gonna you know insanely wobble, and you know it's not gonna fly efficiently. If you if you don't put enough spin on it, like throw it too lightly, it's not gonna go very far, and also the stability of it it's gonna gonna diminish rather quickly. You have to find that right you know spin that you put on that football. And then depending how far you're throwing it. So basically the same thing is happening with the bullet going through the barrel. It's putting a certain amount of spin on it to stabilize that certain round out to a certain distance. Okay. It's, Good it's dependent to the, yeah, as I like the football analogy, uh, the, um, it, it's really dependent on the length of the round, the weight of the round, diameter and everything. But mm -hmm. luckily the, uh, we don't figure that stuff out for ourselves. The army gives us a gun and they're like, here you go. This is one and eight twists. And you're like, awesome. Yeah. Someone else but, figured it out. Like Brian. Lee. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but what now you have to do is depending on the spin of the bullet. Uh, now, like, like, like he just brought up the Mark 22 has a one and eight, which is fairly fast for that bullet. So now you've got the spin of the bullet wanting to create something called spin drift, which brings the bullet over to the right, which I'm not going to get too far into, but that's a effect that we have to, you know, uh, calculate for. Uh, it, it needs to be compensated, and uh, it'll cause a miss if you don't. So, makes sense. What about uh, ballistic coefficient? <laughs> so I can I can so do this one. I like my analogy. So the uh, okay. <laughs> the the uh, ballistic coefficient is kind of like uh, it's a numeric value for the bullet that rates its aerodynamic properties. So the higher the number, the more aerodynamic the bullet is. You know, so the the higher up the number the better that bullet's going to retain its velocity, which is going to be, a, you know, uh, ultimately the longer range you can shoot it and how better, uh, how much, how much better it will buck the wind when the wind tries to push the bullet. Makes sense. So what's like a, what's like a, a, a poor ballistic coefficient and, and like a round that we use as an example of it. And what's like a really good one. So the uh, the three oh the standard three oh eight uh, cartridge has a a G one coefficient of 0.475. Okay. Um the the five five six match ammo is 0.375. The three hundred normas uh it's G seven is 0.358, uh which is incredible. Yeah, it um, sounds bad but, to be a low number, but there's a difference between G one and G seven, and what so, you'll see is yeah. that a lot well, that, of advertisers so, will put their, their but, G1, you know. Yeah, right. So, ben, so the G1 the of 308 is, is 0. 0.2264. Uh, so so the 308 ammo is 0. 0.264, and the 308, uh, the 300 norm, I mean, is 0. 0.358. And that's on the same. Those are equal uh, drag scales. So Yeah, <clears throat> yeah Ben, I just did the math for you. It's uh, for the G1 scale for the 300 norm, it's a 0. 0.695. Yeah. 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 And just to put it out there for listeners, so we'll just stick with the G1 scale. Basically, the perfect ballistic coefficient on G1 scale is a one. So they're basing it off pretty much zero to one. So when you get something that's like 0.375, that's on the lower end of the scale. Now we have your 300 norma, which is at 0.695. You're like, man, that thing's almost at a one. That, that thing is badass. It's going to buck the wind more, it's going to go further, and it's going to retain more kinetic energy at the target so, as opposed so, to your basic five five six round 
Yeah, just to kind of talk that back to you. So, like, your ballistic coefficient is like the aerodynamic efficiency of the bullet. Like, the higher the number, the more efficient it is, the more force it retains, the further it'll go, the more stopping power it has downrange. Yep. It's exactly. just going to retain more through longer period of its flight. Okay. Because you've got the every since the bullet leaves the muzzle, you've got drag, gravity, and wind trying to make the bullet not move in a straight line. Yeah. Okay. Makes and sense. then you you do have you know for for the listeners out there that are running kestrels and stuff like that, depending upon what ammo you're running, you'll see in your kestrel that you can run a, a CDM, which is a custom drag model, which is what you want in those kestrels because instead of comparing it to um, you know the best out there, literally comparing that bullet to that bullet, so it, it's on the same. It, it's going to be a one if that makes sense. Right. But the, all this kind of brings up a, a really interesting point that um, whereas a lot of times like infantrymen are kind of like um, portrayed as kind of like these like gorillas that they're like, I'm all strength and no brain or whatever. But like it seems like sniping is not that way at all. There's actually a certain element of math, physics that kind of go into it as well. It's it's weaponized math. But don't worry, there are absolutely uh, guys on the lower end of the ASVAB scale in the infantry. Like That, that does exist. <laughs> But the, and there's yeah. and there's a place I mean, for those guys. Here, carry this machine gun. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I will say this: some of the smartest people I've known actually were in the infantry. I'm talking about GT scores in the 140s, and they just want to do that. They want to carry a machine gun and you know light things up. Yeah, so it's it, it's it's funny. It's interesting. But definitely, you know, sniper. It's a it's a thinking man's game for sure. You need to know and account for everything that specific ground that you're using is doing. You need to account for what you are doing in the field as well, because you're not with a nine-man squad or a 32-man platoon. You're with, like, you, your partner, and maybe three other guys at security, and that's it. Right. So a lot more Everything's up to you guys. Yeah. So you're playing chess on the battlefield while everybody else is playing checkers. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. being uh being being detected is your ultimate uh is the ultimate thing you want to avoid. So you have to it takes a lot of it takes a lot of planning and preparation and work to make sure that doesn't happen. So well, it sounds like a lot of fun. It can be no, yeah. it is. That's why we can still do it. <laughs> yeah, that's why we don't want to leave. <laughs> I don't so, want to like, do anything else. Yeah. Altogether, I mean, like y'all are talking about being in since 04, 05. Y'all, y'all are getting close to like two decades of service. What's like, um, what are your t- big takeaways uh, with, with sniping? Like if you had like a, a new a new guy who's just showing up day one to sniper school, what what do they need to know to be successful at, like you guys have been? Uh, well, other than your, just your, uh, obviously your job proficiency, because commanders are going to want to uh, to show off like how good you are. But the, the main thing is, is especially a, the problem that we're seeing in units is making yourself useful to your commanders. Learn how to uh, learn how to interact with your staff section. Uh, learn how to, you know, gather useful reconnaissance and do useful things for your battalion so you get used more, so your job doesn't go away. Because being a, a sniper qualified guy that never gets to do his job isn't fun for anybody. So the biggest takeaway is to uh, find a way to employ yourself uh, in your unit. Right. 
Well, since you're an officer, you can relate to that. I mean, no, yeah. So that, that actually hits home. I, um, I, I get the, the opportunity to talk to a lot of different uh, chaplain candidates or people that, that want to become chaplains and, and things like that. And they have a mental model of like, I sit in a chapel and, and I do chaplain things and that's it. And that's definitely part of it. All right. But there's a big part of it that, that like you have a unique skill set that you have to turn around and try to like, you know, apply to other, like, how can I help you or whatever and try to add value uh, to you to try to, to, to become more useful and so it sounds like y'all are doing a lot of the same things that y'all show up at s2 and being like hey look uh, you know need to find out about this thing i can get close to that and, and uh, is that kind of like what what i'm hearing you exactly that's exactly, uh, exactly. one of the things that we did whenever we were still in section was um we put together basically a a, a brief for our for our command um all the way up to battalion and you know, set them down and, and showed them like, hey, listen, this is what we can do and this is what we can't do. So kind of gave them our strengths and weaknesses, um, let them know what, you know, we were in a, a Charlie company. So we were uh, scouts, you know, and we were like, hey, man, why why send 12 people to do a job that two can do, you know? And, and um, so like Ben said, being useful, making sure your command knows what your limitations are. Um, and then as far as being a brand new guy trying to get in the sniper section or be in school, I would say be a sponge, you know, just always one of my biggest takeaways and, and Ben and Eric have heard me say it several times, but you can learn something from anyone, even if it's the wrong thing, you know, like, hey, I'm never doing that. Right. Um, so just even if what you to, learn is that this yeah. guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You still learn something. You definitely you learned something. it. Yeah. yeah. So um, looking at, at that, like, what's the, uh, what's the future uh, of sniping look like? Because, I mean, like, over the past two decades of, of uh, the GWAT, there was, like, a certain role for snipers and stuff, and it made sense. Um, but going into, like, a LISCO environment, like you're talking about with the drones and stuff, and, and Alan, you talked about how, uh, you know, it's always changing. What's, what's in the future for, uh, for the sniper section? That's a good question um because we're all curious about the same thing you know marine corps just did away with their mm -hmm. their uh snipers um i i would foresee there's going to be a shift um there's no talk of our school going away or the benning school but i definitely think that with with near peer stuff like it it appears that it's going to come to we're going to have to make some dramatic changes in our equipment um especially when it comes to concealment which there is a, a ton of technology out there that's just not available to the public that we get to see at the schoolhouse uh, or that you may see at some of these competitions that vendors are bringing. So um, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the future holds, um, but you know, we're, I'm, I'm here for the long ride. I'm not going anywhere. So. Right. So is there, I a think that's where, go ahead. Go ahead Eric. I think that's where us as the more, senior snipers that have been in this game for quite some time are going to have to step up and find where we can input ourselves into the future because if not they're going to leave us on the back burner you know if it comes down to you know counter drone operations running our own drones you know we have you know all the field craft knowledge that we know and you know we can even implement ourselves within the line companies and provide more Overwatch for them better more than more so than their SDMs. A lot of the SDMs aren't properly trained either. So we can train their SDMs, or we can also act as their SDMs. We can go out on our own, you know, with thermal defeat and whatnot, and still provide good, good intel on the enemy without getting busted. And that's that's what I think 
the way the future for the snipers are going to are going to be. We're definitely not going anywhere, but it's up to us to figure out how we can still implement our tactics. From a from a reconnaissance standpoint, it's always going to be more efficient to be able to have three guys do what a platoon is to do. Uh, and we, Alan and I saw this at JRTC, we were able to move much farther and faster and remain undetected longer than a lot of the other reconnaissance elements that were out there. Uh, and that's, you know, JRTC is about as near peer as we can get. I mean, it, it really depends on how high up the throttle the, the OP4 is wanting to, you know, to dial you in for. But uh, there there's always going to be a need for on-ground, like live reconnaissance. Um, and there's always going to be a need for support and direct action. So as long as those don't go anyway, uh, our base skill set will be there. We just need to, we need to find new things that we can do that encompass our job set. Absolutely, and I think part of it too is the fact that we've been at war in Afghanistan and Iraq in a desert environment, and now if we look at Ukraine, that's a lot of woods. You know, so your drones and your and your your uh, ISR assets, you know, are going to be limited once you start getting into those the woodland and those triple canopy type environments, and that's where we'll be able to maneuver and scouts will be able to maneuver and. You won't be able to see anything through those camera feeds, so you're still going to have to rely on the man on the ground. That's a, that's a really good uh, point and observation that um, if we, we change the uh, the terrain, then all of a sudden you guys have a whole new value add that maybe you wouldn't have in uh, like a desert environment. Yeah. And one of the things that we're trying to add is because you know, we can get, we can uh, penetrate so deep into, in, into, basically unsecured terrain is, uh, you know, we always have been pushing to add more reconnaissance into the sniper course. And, uh, and you could, we could probably find an avenue into that by adding, uh, you know, basically like a small uh, quadcopter drone piloting program into that. You know, if you could get a guy, you know, uh, six, seven kilometers ahead of, uh, ahead of the flot and, and then he can launch a drone from there and, and then, really take away a lot of that personal risk on his safety uh, by being able to extend the drone out in further range. That would be even better. I mean, we've seen how effective drones are in the last, in the last year. Uh, it, we just need to train. I, I think that eventually, uh, ideally that the snipers will be competent drone users. So and that'll be part of one of the, one of the things we do. That makes a lot of sense. So I got one final question for you guys. I'm hoping to uh, divide and conquer. Um, Sniper, the sniper role has a long legacy full of like a lot of heroes. So, who, in y'all's opinion, is the best sniper in history? Hmm. No, Eric's favorite is Nicholas Irving. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a ranger. Oh god, no. I mean, for me, it'd be Carl Tathcock. And, you know, you don't have to have the most kills in history, but just the missions that that man did, you know, moving how he did to shoot the general. Um, he's had, you know, the sniper duel with the Cobra. You know, he also had one, if you ever read his book, where he tracked down the Frenchman, you know, and and, uh, and the, the female, uh, the Apache. You know, just those those missions right there, it just makes him a legend. I don't think it's going to be extremely hard to ever beat that. You know, it's kind of like those teams that, you know, win the Super Bowl. Sometimes it's not the team that has the most wins. It's the team that just, you know, does the best at working together. 
or yeah. you know as, as the best skill set so for me it's carl's hathcock yeah uh, anybody else want to teach when I when I teach a uh, sniper history at a at the schoolhouse like that block instruction, I, it's really it's really hard to not get super ramped up over Simo Haya. <laughs> like yeah. I, yeah. The, uh, I mean, just one one dude, you know, stopping you know an entire Russian division in the snow. He <laughs> yeah. killed you know several hundred people in three months. I mean, he was just going to work every day, <laughs> and uh, just a target rich environment, and a guy that knew his terrain, and a guy that had amazing. Uh, fundamental marksmanship and use camouflage to his advantage just absolutely destroyed like he's the epitome of a force multiplier oh yeah and even took a took an incendiary round to the face and lived so yeah alan what's your favorite oh man i would say probably there's a guy out there he's his name's alan smith and he's a fairly accomplished. <laughs> no, uh, no, he's a really humble dude too. Yeah, he's yeah. Humble. No, no, no. He's a good uh, Carlos Hathcock is. I'm a big fan. Um, I've read his book. If you haven't read it, I, I would recommend it. There are people out there that will tell you, you know, some of his stories made up, whatever. But the man is a legend. Uh, and do I believe he sent around through a scope? Probably not. But um but what that guy went through and the things that he had to do um especially i think eric touched on it the general you know some of those missions it was just him and it was days of crawling you know and uh i've just got a lot of respect especially for vietnam veterans in general but but carlos carlos is a favorite of mine for sure yeah, that, that definitely like, hits home with me. When I was in ninth grade, my English teacher uh, handed me his book, and I still have it at, at the house. And I was just like, it, it seemed to be so ridiculous, some of the things that he did. I, I was like, there's this just no way, it's like so outrageous that uh, it just can't be true. But then you look back on pictures of like, of seeing him, you know, like mounting a, uh, the uh, starlight scope to a 50 and shooting out and doing all that stuff. And it's just like, wow. So like, this is actually, this is a real dude. And he's from Little Rock, Arkansas. So it was like right there, yeah. you know, uh, in y'all's home, hometown. Yeah, I actually found, have... I found a, a feather, um, like a, a yeah, white, white feather or whatever, feather. when yeah. I was out at sniper school and I would just put it in my boonie and just <laughs> wear it. <laughs> he was looking down on you. <laughs> yeah, I know, man, yeah. I felt lucky. We need to we need to add him to the sniper history because he's not he's not in our history course because he's a marine so right uh, and we we teach army sniper school but I mean I think he's I think he's merited enough to add him to it so oh, I yeah. mean if you got Sam Ohio on there he's not yeah, American yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you're right you're right <laughs> yeah 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 well guys it's, it's been just some, yeah. it, it's yeah, been wait, great. Oh no, it's fine. Yeah, it's great. I, I don't want to keep you guys uh, uh, for too long, but I just want to thank you for for coming on and keep doing uh, great things out there. Um, I, we're always happy to to help you guys if there's something that y'all want to do in Washington. We'd love to have you up uh, up in uh, Seattle, Tacoma. Yeah, appreciate sure. the invite and thank you yeah. for having us on. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.